Hey, everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, balance, what are we talking about? We're talking about the skill of finding the right approach uh, when it would be easier to do uh, something in another direction. What I mean by another direction, isn't it interesting that in almost every area of my life, I could go wrong multiple ways. I could go wrong in terms of overkill. I could go wrong in terms of not addressing something properly. I saw that at Dylan's a couple, a couple of years ago. I was, I was at Dylan's and I saw this thing of balance that we're talking about, great example of it. Um, and, and I think parenting will test your balance. Anybody, can I get a witness to the fact that parenting will test your balance like, no, like nothing else? And I'm, I'm in Dylan's and I'm going down the refrigerated items aisle and uh, there are two parents, a, a mother and a father, who are just yelling at and tearing into this kid. And I'm thinking this kid looks to be maybe five or six years old. And I'm assuming they think that they're disciplining their kid by yelling at them, which by the way, I haven't said this in any of the other messages, but you realize yelling at your kids is not disciplining them, right? Like our job in raising our kids is to prepare them to be adults. And someday when they're you know, driving a little too fast, you know, and they're speeding in, a, in, you know, in, an, in an area and a police officer pulls them over, you do realize the officer isn't gonna come up and you know, come up to their window and scream at them and then say, fine, leave. No, the officer is gonna say, do you know why I pulled you over? They're gonna be respectful, but there's consequences in life. There's consequences in life to things that we do. But these parents apparently thought that the way to discipline their kid was with their mood. And so they're using this, you know, just way over the top, way over the top things that they were saying. Some of the things were insulting their own parenting job. <laughs> they were, some of the insults were about how this kid was raised, and I'm thinking, didn't you raise the kid, you know? <laughs> um, but I guess, you know, so I'm thinking to myself, obviously this five-year-old held someone up at gunpoint. And the parents are just trying to help this kid understand you can't do that. But it turns out as I get closer, the kid wanted something from the refrigerated section. The parents said no. The kid whined. Now, I get it. I understand. As a parent, there is nothing that is fingernails on the chalkboard like a child whining. I get it. But it seemed to me to be just a little, just a, just a little hair overkill. You know, I mean, maybe we're going just a little bit over the top. And then I turn around the corner and I'm, I'm coming around. And now nobody's going to be around me in grocery stores. They're going to be like, I'm going to be in one of Pastor Hoover's sermons. But I'm coming around the corner to one of the other refrigerated aisles and I see the absolute opposite. It was a study in contrast because there are these parents whose kids are running around the store like wild wolves. And one of the children has gone into the refrigerator, is tearing apart frozen dinners and sitting on one of the uh, racks inside the refrigerator. Now, I know I'm an anxious person and I probably see trouble where there isn't trouble, but I'm thinking to myself, that can't be safe. So I say to the parent, I'm like, did you notice your kid is sitting inside the refrigerator? And the parent said, it's all right. They do that every time they come here. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. You can get pulled in one of two directions. It's not just about right or wrong. It's that often there are so many wrong options to choose from. There's usually one right option and a whole bunch of wrong options. 
And I find myself frustrated so many times because I'm like, how many wrong choices can I make? I, I want so badly to make the right choice, but there are so many potential wrong choices. And that's what we're talking about with balance. Balance in the sense is we're talking about finding that right approach in the midst of a bunch of wrong approaches that I could take. And we live in a world that lures us to those wrong choices because we live in a world of extremes. And we talked about that last week. And we, we live in a sin-cursed, broken world. And by the way, I came into this world compatible with that system. My system was compatible with the sin system coming into this world. So the, the extremes that are gonna push against me the hardest, the Bible says, is a desire for things that look good to me, a desire for things that I think are gonna feel good, and a desire to be puffed up in pride. Those three things are gonna be extremes that push against me my whole life and try to knock me off balance. And last week we said, it's important that we know that with these extreme pressures that we're going through, not a single one of us was born with the capacity to be balanced. We don't come into this world with that. We come into this world as unbalanced people. And we have to develop the skill of balance, which is what we talked about last week. Balance is not a, it's not a personality trait. It's not a, it's not a characteristic. It is a skill. It's something that you develop. You learn to be balanced and you learn through practice, daily practice, trying to make right decisions, small right decisions, one right decision at a time, one step at a time. That's the practice that we talked about last week. Now, this week and next week, we're gonna talk about the fact that even if you've developed the skill of balance, and all of us are on that journey, we're all trying to develop the, the skill of balance, and we're all at different stages of that, getting better, but no matter how good you've gotten at developing balance, I wanna warn you that there is no such thing as balance by the seat of your pants. You will never be balanced on autopilot. You will always have to be intentional about balance because that's the very nature of it. Last week I talked about Nick Walenda and his famous tightrope walk across the Grand Canyon. And as many times as he's walked on a tightrope, as many times as he's done this, and almost as, as instinctive as some of the right things to do are for him because he's just drilled that into his consciousness of doing this over and over again, as good as he is, and he's good, if you watch the video of him walking across the Grand Canyon, he is not on autopilot. There is no seat of your pants, anything going on there. He is thinking about every single step. And that's why we're gonna talk about the short-term goal for being intentional about focus this week. And next week, we'll talk about how to plan long-term for being focused in your life. Uh, but before we get too far into this, I just wanna remind you that the, the definition that we're using for balance here uh, is the ability to stay upright when it would be easier to fall. And I think that's a good analog because we understand that's what balance is when we're learning how to walk or uh, learning how to ride a bike or for gymnasts, learning how to walk on a balance beam. It's just easier to fall. That's why that's why it's an enviable thing to learn how to balance. If you can balance, it's enviable because it's easier to fall and we know that. And so we said, we're gonna talk about three areas where this is especially true. It's especially true that it's easier to fall rather than stand in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions. And those three things together, by the way, are the things that will build our legacy. At the end of my life, what my life will be characterized by is what I thought because that drives my conclusions my words because that drives my relationships, and my actions because that drives what I will leave when I leave this earth. What I do on this earth is what will leave that footprint when I'm gone. And someday, when I am gone, I hope people will be able to say that in Jonathan's thoughts, his words, and his actions, he was a balanced person. And it's a, it's a daily struggle and something I'm working on, but that's what the series is about. Now, quickly, because 
I have a kind of long Bible story that I need to get into, so I wanna, I wanna preface it with this. Because I'm gonna talk about a kind of long Bible story, I don't want the major takeaway to get kind of buried and for you to somehow miss it. So I'm gonna do something I never do, which is I'm gonna give you the takeaway right now. Like this is the big payoff, the big idea of this entire message. I'm just gonna roll it out for you right now because it is so important that I don't want you to lose it. And that is this, that if I wanna be balanced, I need to look where I'm going because I'm going where I'm looking. I need to look where I'm going because I'm going where I'm looking. Human beings were not built to look in one direction and go another, right? I mean, the grocery store, I just talked a second, about, a second ago about the grocery store. Isn't that a perfect example of that? Have you ever noticed that for some reason, I don't know why, people in grocery stores do not look where they're going? <laughs> I don't know if it's all the product that's everywhere, but it's, it's almost like their head is on a constant swivel. They're walking through, and they're pushing metal in your direction. There's this big metal box they're pushing in your direction, and while they're doing it, they're just sort of looking everywhere as though they've never seen a grocery store in their life. Like this is a completely new experience for me, right? And how many times has somebody bumped into you at a grocery store because they're not looking where they're going? We're just not designed to do that. And I think it frustrates us with driving, right? Because somebody's looking down at their beeping, vibrating, buzzing, status updating, glowing digital pacifier and they're, they're typing on it or whatever and they're supposed to be looking outside the windshield. And the reason we're frustrated about it is because we know we're not good at looking one direction and going another direction. And this is especially true in your spiritual life, that you are going where you're looking. This is actually a theme in scripture. You will see this over and over again, that wherever your focus is, that dictates where you're headed. So last week we were in Proverbs 3. We talked about trusting in the Lord with all your heart, because the human tendency is to trust in the Lord with some of your heart. But the Bible's talk to, talking to us about trusting the Lord with all of our heart. And then it talks about leaning, which is the essence of balance. Remember we said that, knowing where to place your weight. And it says, don't lean on your own understanding. So my gut is gonna be louder than my God, but I've gotta decide whether to listen to my gut or my God, and I know that my God is much more reliable than my gut. We talked about that last week. This week, though, we're gonna move on to Proverbs 4. So if you have your Bible and you wanna follow along or your digital reading device or whatever and you wanna follow along, we're gonna be in Proverbs 4. And as a matter of fact, we're gonna be in Proverbs 4 for the rest of the series. Just a few verses stacked together are gonna to give us guidance on how to live a balanced life. And this is Proverbs 4, 25, where the Bible says, look straight ahead and fix your eyes on what lies before you. Fix, that's an interesting word. Fix your eyes. There are a couple places in the Bible where we're told to fix something. In, in, uh, in the Apostle uh, Paul's writings, he says that we are to fix our thoughts on, and then he gives us a list of appropriate things to think about, or appropriate qualifiers for things we should think about. So why should we fix our thoughts on those things? Or why should we fix our eyes on what lies before us? Well, why would you, why would you want a fixed rate mortgage? Because we know that things that are not fixed tend to drift, and they can drift in bad directions right? So anytime the Bible tells us to fix something, it's because it wants to wander. So I know that when, when the scripture says I need to fix my thoughts, and, and Paul gives me this list of things I need to fix my thoughts on, why would I need to do that? Because my thoughts are going to want to wander off in all other kinds of directions. When, when the scripture says I need to fix my eyes front, eyes forward, why is the scripture saying that? Because my eyes are going to want to go in other directions. Now, I'm going to tell you that I think that this holds the key for many of us to experiencing a huge move forward in this area of our life and balance. As a matter of fact, I would say, I think this is one adjustment that you could make that can make all the difference. 
golfers in this room, you know how it is. Sometimes if, you're, if your swing is a little off, it's amazing how the golf pro can just tweak one little thing and suddenly all the work you've been doing to get good suddenly kicks in and it starts to work for you. I experienced this with a hobby once. I, uh, in, in 2010, my dad went through a sort of breakdown time where he was sort of mentally and emotionally unwell and um, I had just come to work here. At, at the church that I had served at before, I'd been at the uh, First Baptist Church of Edmond for three and a half years, but I was not a pastor on their staff. So this was my first pastoral role at New Spring. I was brand new, very green, just getting my feet underneath me, and this is when sort of this crisis happened. And I definitely felt like I was swimming in at the, at, at the deep end of the pool. Um, one of the things that's, that's beneficial for you and me is that we know at this point that my dad got much better and he was great when he came back and God has given him a season of ministry like we never saw before since then. But at the time, we didn't know that and it was quite scary. And so I was speaking for my dad, trying to, trying to help with some of the things that he did in his role uh, when he was here and uh, I was just really stressed out. And so one of the things that I did to just keep my sanity and my wife was very much in support of this. She said, look, if this will help you just kind of stay okay, then this is great, um, was the idea, I needed a hobby that I could just sort of, I could get some time alone and, and be in this hobby and sort of clear my, my mind. And so I decided to pick up bowling. I don't know why, I don't. Like it was, why, why bowling, why not something else? Well, there was a bowling alley in the suburb of Wichita that we lived in and so it, I guess it made sense to me. And I really got into it. I bought the, the, you know how you can buy your own bowling balls? I bought my own bowling balls. I bought the little bag that you can walk in with because then you look cool. When you walk into the bowling alley and you have your own bag, then you look cool. And I had the shoes that, well, they don't look cool. Um, and I, I would, so every Tuesday night, they had all you can bowl from eight to midnight. For you paid, a, you paid a flat fee, you come in, you could bowl from eight to midnight, and that's what I would do. I would go in on Tuesday nights, and I would just bowl game after game after game, just me on one, um, on one bowling lane. And uh, I would bowl sometimes 30, 50 games in a night. Um, and, but that was sort of just my time to decompress. And uh, so I would do that, and I would be there. It's just a small bowling alley, and not the reason that they did all you can bowl is not a lot of people bowled on Tuesday nights. So often I was really there kind of by myself a lot um, doing this. And uh, that was good for me. But one night there was this guy. See, there, there's on these old school bowling alleys, most of you have seen this before. You have the alleys, but then there's sort of like this, this step up to this place where people have a table. They can be eating snacks or whatever and watch you bowl. And that's not creepy. If, if there's more than one person bowling and there's more than one person watching, that's not creepy. But if you're the only person who's bowling and there's only one person watching, that turns out to be really creepy. And there was this old guy watching me bowl and he started watching me at eight o'clock when I started. It's now like 11 o'clock and I'm thinking this guy has no life or he's gonna murder me in the parking lot. I don't know which one, but one, one of the two. And so I'm like, well, maybe he won't murder me if I say something nice to him. So as I'm going up to the snack bar to get a, a Coke, I, I, I say something to him, hey, how's it going? And, and uh, all he said to me was, he's like, would you like me to fix your game? And I thought, well, it is broken. Because um, even though I probably bowled a thousand games in this time in my life, what you should know is I never got good. Not ever did I, I never got even a little bit good. And this poor person obviously noticed that. And so he came down to the, to the alley and showed me one thing. I don't remember what it was. Honestly, I, I, I don't. If I did, I would probably be a pastor and a pro bowler because for the rest of that night, I was putting up incredible scores. I broke 100. It was right, I got into three digits. It was, it was very impressive. I was taking selfies, sending pictures, putting it on social media. Um, 
But that's what this thing about focus is gonna do for you. If you can get this, it will take all the hard work that you've been doing and it'll be that one tweak that could really just light it up for you and make it really work. So I wanna talk to you about that because ultimately excellent balance is the result of excellent focus. If your focus is right, your balance will be right. If you're struggling with balance, I can just tell you, don't take this as an insult, but if you're struggling with balance, I can just tell you you're struggling with focus. So if you get this right, this could change your world. Now, in order to really, I think, send this home about how to really focus forward, eyes forward, no matter what I'm going through in life, I wanna take you to a story in the book of Genesis. It happens to be my favorite story in all of the Old Testament, um, and it's about a guy named Joseph. I have to tell you, I'm gonna have to do a flyby. This is gonna be like the most Google Earth view of Joseph's life you've ever seen in your life, which means I'm gonna have to leave a lot of stuff out and just hit the high points. But I will tell you, this is one of the coolest stories in all of scripture, and if you wanna go deeper with it, we've done no fewer than five sermon series on the life of Joseph. Um, most recent one is called Flexible. You can get it on the New Spring app and just watch it there. But we have multiple series. There's a series called Thrive, which is wonderful, that's on Joseph's life, but we've done multiple series uh, on the life of Joseph, but we're really gonna have to fly by. So please permit me to give you sort of the Cliff's notes on Joseph's life. What you need to know about Joseph is he was, uh, he was a person who dealt with life being perpetually unfair, and that is when you will struggle the most with focus, because when life feels fair, it's not difficult to be focused, yes? It's not, it's not difficult to, to, to follow God when we're not angry inside because we're going through a difficult time or because things are happening to us that just don't feel right. It is much harder to be focused and balanced when it feels like we're going through stuff we shouldn't be having to go through. We're going through difficulty we shouldn't be having to go through. And that's like the story of Joseph's life. First of all, he was born into a very dysfunctional family. I mean, probably no dysfunctional families represented here in the room, but he was born into a very, very dysfunctional family. And uh, one, one of the ways in which it was dysfunctional, his dad was married to more than one woman. And uh, sometimes guys will come up to me and they'll say, now, Jonathan, did you notice that in the Old Testament there's some guys married to more than one woman? What about that? And I always wanna say, did you ever notice how it turned out? <laughs> it didn't, never turned out well. Just, just, the, results didn't, the, the results of that experiment weren't great, you know? But that happened, and one of the, the challenges in Joseph's family was that his dad played favorites. He had a favorite wife, he had a favorite son. Joseph was the favorite son, and that sounds like that would be a good thing. But you know if you were your parents' favorite, that didn't make you the person of the year to your siblings, did it? Like Joseph had real issues with his siblings because Joseph was the one that dad loved and dad didn't much care for his brothers, so that created tension from the word go. And then as he got older, when Joseph came of age, uh, Joseph's dad wanted to promote him and help him in his life move forward, and so he did something. He gave Joseph a coat, a fancy coat. We, most of us have grown up thinking it was a coat of many colors, and that might be true, um, but we don't know that for sure from Scripture. What we do know is that whatever sort of coat it was, it could have been what's called a long coat, or it could have been a coat of many colors. Either way, it had one message, and the message was, I'm in charge. To give someone that coat, that garment, was a sign that they're in charge. When, when Joseph's dad sent Joseph out to check up on his brothers wearing that coat. He might, have well have, he might as well have sent Joseph out with a big name tag that said general manager on it. You wanna talk about putting somebody in a tough spot. His brothers already hate him, and now he's sending, he's sending Joseph out to be in charge, and his brothers feel that they have paid their dues, and he hasn't. This kid's coming out to tell us what to do. And on top of all that, Joseph's dad wanted Joseph to report back about his brothers. His brothers were a hot mess. So... To his brothers, it always seemed like Joseph was tattling on them. Joseph was always going back to dad and telling them the things they were doing wrong. Joseph didn't really have a choice. That's what he had been assigned to do. 
but that relationship was so strained and it was getting worse and worse and worse. And then something happened. God started to give Joseph dreams. And at the time, the, the, the whole body of scripture wasn't available. And so God would often talk to people through dreams and there would be important meanings to them. And God would give certain people the ability to really interpret those dreams. Joseph was someone that God gave the ability to interpret dreams. And then on top of that, he was giving Joseph this special dream that Joseph inter- took to mean that his, his family would at some point bow down to him. At some point, the whole family, including his, his uh, parents, would bow down to him. And in his you know, youthful exuberance, I think he thought his whole family would want to hear about that. So he shared that with them, and it wasn't well received. Not even by his dad, who was typically his biggest fan. So you have this, this tension in the family, mostly with the brothers just thinking, this kid has got to go. He, is, he has got a massive, you know, what is it they, when we, when we were kids, people used to talk about having a swelled head, you know, you get really full of yourself. I don't think Joseph was full of himself, but I think his brothers thought he was. And they decided, you know, he, Joseph was coming out to, to check up on them, and I think they decided, well, they were gonna kill him. That's what the scripture says, they were gonna kill him. And it's a bad day when your family decides to kill you. Um... But then as they were thinking this through, some Ishmaelite slave traders came through and they realized, hey, we could work this situation out a lot better. We wouldn't be technically guilty of murder if we sold him to these slave traders, plus we get some money out of the deal. And so that's exactly what they did. They sold Joseph. But I want you to think about, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You go from being the child in the family who can do no wrong, dad's favorite, the child who is valued and you're in a wealthy family that it looks like I'm gonna be well taken care of. I don't have anything to worry about the future. Everything feels very secure. You grow up a very secure young man and now everything that you believe in, you've lost. You've lost your family. You're walking away to to Egypt in chains and you're gonna be worth whatever somebody will pay for you. Instead of being worth all that affirmation he got from his family and from his father, that's all gone. That's, That's done with. Now what he feels is just people treating him like he's a piece of property. So if ever there was a person who had a right to say, I have a right to be unbalanced. I'm not gonna focus on what's ahead. What, what is ahead? I have no future. I did have a future until about five minutes ago. Now I have no future. If ever a person had a right to say, I'm just giving up, it was Joseph. And I would have given up if I'd been in his shoes. It's important for me to know that because I'm gonna deal with unfairness in my life. And if I'm, if I'm the kind of person who's gonna say, you know what, I give up because I'm dealing with unfairness, I need to learn some lessons from Joseph. And that's what we're gonna talk about here. I'm gonna go ahead and pick up the story in Genesis 39. Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders and purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Once again, this is about as bad as it gets. I'm now on the bottom of the totem pole in a huge house. This is one of the things. It would have been one thing if he'd been bought as a servant in a small household. I'd never heard this before, but a Bible commentator was talking about this the other day. And I thought, wow, this is really true. That in Egypt, the, it would have been such that if he had been, if he had been purchased, and, and it would have been terrible regardless. No scenario would have been good. But if he had been purchased in a small household, he might have actually have had some connection with the people that he was going into that household with. There might have actually been some relationships he could have leaned into. But he got bought into a huge household where he's gonna be a number and not a name. He's, he's been bought into a big household where his, basically he is on the bottom of a very, very big org chart. And he's as low as it can go. It's a bad day for him. And I think, again, if I'm him, I'm just giving up. 
But the thing is, Joseph understood that even when I'm going through something unfair, God is with me. And actually, the scripture says this, the Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success, the ability to stand and not fall in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant, and he put him in charge of his entire household and everything that he owned. Now, quickly, and this is just a side point, one of the things you're gonna notice about Joseph, Joseph goes through multiple setbacks, as do all of us, right? I think his were harder than most of what we'll go through. But ultimately, the one thing about life is you will go through multiple setbacks. You'll have good moments, you'll have bad moments. But the one thing that's interesting about Joseph is he would always rise to the top. Life would push him down, but he'd always come back up. And that's because God promotes balanced people. Now, the world that we live in will promote unbalanced people, but you'll notice they only stay promoted for a while because an unbalanced person may have the pedigree, but they don't have the ability. They may have it on paper, but they don't have it for real. A balanced person has it for real. And when God promotes them, what will happen is they will look better in reality than they look on their resume. They will, they will outperform what they should be able to perform based off of their background because God promotes balanced people. Whereas a person who is unbalanced will underperform their resume. They'll look great on paper, but they won't be able to deliver. But Joseph always would rise to the top. I do find symbolism in the garments in the story of Joseph. Just a side point. Because that garment that, that Joseph's dad gave him was a sign of being the manager, of being in charge. And then he lost that. His brothers ripped it off of him. When his brothers sold him into slavery, they had to tell dad something. So they ripped it up. They ripped up that coat. I think they had a coat ripping party, frankly. I think they didn't like Joseph very much. And this was their opportunity to really have some fun with this. They ripped up that coat. They dipped it in blood, took it back to dad and said, you know, they, they put on some fake tears and, you know, wild animal has eaten our, our best buddy, our brother Joseph. You know, meanwhile, they're, they're under their breath. They're chuckling and snickering because it's like, you know, finally, we've committed the perfect crime. We're done with this kid. And Joseph lost that coat. Here's what I want to tell you. Whatever you lose in terms of your authority, your position, whatever you've worked your way up to, if you lose it, but you're on track with God, God has something better than what you had to give up. Right. He's got something better than what you had to give up. And what we know from Bible scholars is that in Egypt, he would have gotten a different garment because in, in the ancient world, it didn't matter. The different cultures, your garments said what your position was. And now he's Potiphar's right-hand guy, so now he's wearing the Armani suits. And when people see him, they go, well, that's a guy who's in charge. But if you know the story, you know he doesn't get to keep that suit either, does he? Because the Bible tells us that Joseph was good-looking. In the Hebrew, it says Joseph was hot. No, it doesn't. I'm joking. <laughs> It says he was very good looking, right? If, if people had nicknamed him GQ, nobody would have asked why. They would have known, you know. And uh, Potiphar's wife, she, she noticed Joseph and she was really interested in him. And, and my hunch is she'd had relationships with a few of the people that worked around the house. And so this to her seemed like her right. To her, it seemed like a right that if she wanted to have a sexual relationship with Joseph, they owned him as far as she was concerned, so why not? And I think she went up to him and said that. I think she said, you know, I'm hot, you're hot, why not? You know, let's do this thing. And... Uh, he said no, which by the way, this is one of the ways to deal with temptation. We're gonna talk about that in just a second. We're, we'll get to the idea of temptation later on in the message, but Joseph does an amazing job of dealing with temptation and gives us a, a, a pattern that all of us can follow as we deal with that, and we'll, we'll get there in just a minute. But as you know the story, you know that 
she kept coming after him. He tried to stay out of her way. He tried to be away from her whenever he could, but she kept coming after him. One time she finds him alone in the house and she grabs onto him and thinks that she will finally get him to be in a sexual relationship with her, but he is so determined that he's not going to do that. He runs away from her, but as he runs away, she gets his coat. See what I mean by, you find the symbolism in the garments. It's like he's upgraded from his original position, but now she's got his position. He's got his integrity, but she's got his position. Can I tell you, this is the thing. When you lose your integrity, it's very hard to get back. But if you lose your position for the sake of your integrity, God will give you the position to make it up to you. She's got his coat. Now she's got the story. Potiphar comes home, and, and before, even before Potiphar comes home, she's peddling this story to anybody who will listen, that Joseph came in and tried to rape her, and, and you know, she, you know, he tried to force himself on me, which, by the way, is the very last thing that Joseph would ever have done. And, and my dad has told me this for years, and he's so right, that if Satan can't get you to do the wrong thing, he will just try to wound you by accusing you of doing something you would never do. And Joseph is accused in this case of doing something he would never do. He never would have raped her, but she is now promulgated that story to anybody who will listen. And when Potiphar comes home, he has to deal with it. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. Once again, the unfairness of life, it is is just about as high as you can, like the, the level of unfairness is about as high as you could possibly imagine. How unfair. You work your way up to the top of the ladder and once again, you're busted down to the lowest level you can possibly, and, and by the way, we're not talking about a, a, a prison sentence. He's gonna be in prison for a couple years. We're talking about they dumped him here and this is where he's always gonna be. He's just gonna be here until his life is over. And so, one of the things when I talk about being balanced and looking forward, I think one of the challenges when you're dealing with something unfair is you want to go, where's forward? I got no future. And I think if I'm Joseph, I'm thinking, I don't have a future. You're saying I need to look forward to my future in God. I don't think I have a future. And yet Joseph understood that it wasn't about the place he was at, but it was about the purpose God was calling him to. And he understood that so long as I identify with what God is calling me to do, I can be successful wherever I happen to be. The Bible says the Lord was with Joseph in the prison. And so he showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. And before long, the warden put Joseph in charge. Remember how I said balanced people get promoted. He put him in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. See, the thing about it is, you can either let the situation dictate. I want to make sure I say this right. You can either let the situation dictate your behavior. Or you can choose to let your behavior elevate the situation. See, the thing about it is, if I let the situation tell me who to be, then the situation wins. If I let God tell me who to be, then the situation loses its power over me. And that's what Joseph understood. The prison lost its power over him because he was being elevated by God, and God was in charge of a lot more than that prison. I think the other thing that we don't understand sometimes is that in the unfairness of life, we are in training for something God has us to do that's really big. God's got something for us to do that's really big. So what you need to know about Joseph is that in that prison, God is, God is orchestrating events such that there's gonna come a time when the Pharaoh's gonna have a dream that he doesn't know how to interpret. Nobody in, the, in Pharaoh's court knows how to interpret it. And they bring Joseph up because they hear about Joseph. Joseph's not hard to hear about. He tends to be the kind of person people talk about in a good way. And they bring Joseph up to the, to, to the, the court of the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, this is what my dream is. By the way, he has a very balanced answer. He says, I can't interpret your dream, but God can. And he's gonna tell me what to tell you. 
And he explains that dream to Pharaoh and, and he says there's gonna be this big economic crisis coming, you're gonna have to deal with it. And the Pharaoh figures, hey, this guy seems to be a good manager. Seems like he manages just about wherever he is and Pharaoh has him manage Egypt. And now he gets a coat that he doesn't turn loose of. The thing about it is, some of us are grieving over the coat of many colors that we lost some time ago, but I'm telling you, God's got a garment for you. He's got a, he's got a position for you. He's got a role for you. You just haven't quite hit it yet. But if you keep following him, it's coming. Well, what can we learn from Joseph about focus? Because I don't know about you, my tendency is, when I'm dealing with unfairness and challenge, my tendency is to look everywhere but forward. I mean, for instance, I tend to look backward to the past. You know what it's like to get lost in the past? Because the past will absorb you. The stories of the past will absorb you. And I think that that could have happened to Joseph. If I'm Joseph, I'm gonna let my life be defined by what my brothers did to me. That's when my life went downhill. That's when everything went sideways. And by the way, while I'm busy hating my brothers, I'll, I'll hate Potiphar's wife too. I'll just add her to the list. I mean, I would have been writing some very not nice things about them on my prison cell. Like I would have been like, you know, can I draw their picture and throw darts at it? What can I do that I just would let my life be absorbed in that? But I cannot afford to let myself be defined and owned by things that are done and over. That is what the human, human nature is, to be defined and owned by things that are done and over. I cannot go back and change them, but if I live absorbed in it, it will define who I am. There are some people, that's, I think Joseph understood, I cannot go back and undo what my brothers did. There, there's a really good practical lesson here. I cannot go back and undo what my brothers did. I cannot undo what Potiphar's wife did. I cannot change those things, but what I can do is I can, do, I can follow God as best I can in the situation that I have found myself in today. And as I say that, there could be somebody in the room who'd say, Jonathan, I don't, I don't appreciate what you're saying because it sounds to me like you're saying, if someone hurts me, I should just flip a switch and get over it immediately. That is the last thing that I'm saying. When you're wounded by someone, you need to heal. If, if, if when I go out to the parking lot later today, let, let's say you run over me with your car. Please don't uh, run over me with your car when we're out in the parking lot today, but say that you did. And, uh, and so they take me to the hospital and I'm in the hospital with all the tubes and, and stuff coming in and out of me. And, and you come into the hospital room and say, Jonathan, I'm so sorry I ran over you. Can you please forgive me? I'm gonna say, yeah, I forgive you, right? Because forgiveness is something we do because God has forgiven us. On the other hand, if you say, oh great, so you forgive me. All right, hop up, let's go to McDonald's. I'm gonna be like, I'm a little busy here. <laughs> Healing, you know, like going through all the surgeries and stuff. Like I, I'm dealing with the woundedness that I have. And I'm not just gonna, just because I forgive you doesn't mean I'm gonna not be wounded right away. Like I'm gonna have to heal first. And even then, even after I'm healed, I'm probably gonna be a little cautious about stepping in front of your car. I don't want to get run over again. That's all healthy. There's a big difference between having a wound that is in the process of healing and, and holding a grudge. See, when, when I talk about having a wound that's healed, I, I have little spots all over my body where they've taken off little, little things that they were worried might turn into cancer if they left them there. And so I have these little scars. And it's actually kind of fun sometimes. I was at the, the locker room in the gym the other day and a guy walked in and saw those and, and, and obviously thought I'd been in a terrible gun battle and said, how many times did you get shot, you know? <laughs> so many fun ways to answer that question. Anyway, I, um, I, I know from when I had those procedures done, if they had left those, once those incisions were there, if they just left that untreated, just left it open, I would have had a really big problem because wounds need to be treated immediately. Wounds need... They, it needs treatment now, and it needs careful treatment. And by the way, while I'm dealing with a wound, 
my functioning is not going to be quite as high as it usually is. There are gonna be things that I could normally do that I can't do right now because I, I have this active wound. Then over time, it starts to partially heal, but it's still tender, you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm cautious with it. I'm, I don't wanna bump into it. I don't want anything to re-injure it. So it does still affect my ability to function some. Not as much, but still a little bit. But then eventually, it turns into that little pink scar, and I can function fully. When I look in a mirror, it's kind of ugly, and it's always gonna be ugly, and it's always gonna be part of my story. When I look there, it's always gonna be there. And when I see it, it's unfortunate. But at the end of the day, it isn't keeping me from functioning, and I'm not dealing with the pain of it every day. And that's, I think, what Joseph learned how to do, is to say, I'm, I'm wounded, but the goal is to heal. It will be a scar, it'll be part of my story, but I wanna get to the point where I can function. I wanna get to the point where I can fully be what I need to be in this. That's different than a grudge. Let me tell you what the difference between a a wound and a grudge is. If you nurse a wound, it gets better. If you nurse a grudge, it gets worse. So if I put energy into dealing with a wound, I will get better. If I put energy into developing a hard crust of hatred towards somebody, I will get worse. Not just in that relationship, but in general. Notice what Joseph would eventually tell his brothers. And Oh, I wish we had time to talk about this story, but as Joseph is now the, the leader of Egypt, he has an opportunity to either harm his brothers or to redeem the situation because his brothers are now dealing with the same economic crisis everybody else is. They come to see him. He knows them. They don't know him because he doesn't look like his old self. And there is this really incredible story. I hope that when you go home, if you don't know the story, that you have a chance to read it in the scripture because it's so full of meaning. But there comes a time later after Joseph has benevolently brought his brothers and his whole family to Egypt so he can take care of them. There comes a point when his dad dies and now the brothers are worried. Maybe he let us live because dad was, died, dad was alive and now that dad has died, he's gonna come after us and it's gonna be over for us. So they go to Joseph and they lie because lying is what they do. They go and they say, you know, we talked to dad before he died and you know, he said, you should be nice to us. Joseph knows what they're there for. And so he tells them he's gonna take care of them. But in the process, he says this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. He brought me to this position so, and this is important, so I could save the lives of many people. First half of this verse is about the past. This is how he makes sense of the past. How I make sense of the past is you did try to harm me, but God had a bigger plan. And then the second half of this is about his purpose. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, I choose to live in my purpose. I choose not to live in my past. I could, I could live in my past, but that would be a waste of time. Wow, I have not enough time. Some of us struggle with looking back. Some of us struggle with looking down. That's one of my challenges, because I'm an anxious person. And, and you know what they tell you when you're up at a height, they tell you don't look down. You know why they tell you not to look down is because when you look down, you become obsessed with the risk with the bad possibilities. And I, I could be a professional at this. I, I could work for an insurance company as like a risk assessor because if you give me a situation, I can tell you all the things that could go wrong. And not just all the things that could go wrong, I could tell you all the things that could go catastrophically wrong. I could tell you all about the earthquake that could destroy your picnic. I, I'll, I'll give you all the possible things that could happen. And that's for me that idea of looking down. As I'm dealing with challenges and unfairness in my life, I tend to see all the things that could go wrong and I get absorbed in those things. Isn't it true that when you're looking at a height from down below, it doesn't look so bad. When you're looking at it from up there, it looks really, really bad. I mean, I know I went to a water park one time with my kids and they had one of those slides that goes straight down. You know the kind I'm talking about? It's up there 30 or 40 stories in the air and you climb up there and you get on that thing and they have you cross your arms, kind of like in a casket. And they, <laughs> they, 
they push you off. You know what I mean? Like they put their arms on your, they put their hands on your shoulders and they push you off. There's a point at which your back is not touching the slide. Like there's a point at which you're airborne. And then just to complete the whole casket picture, at the end, you are flat on the ground. Like if you died, they wouldn't have any problem just scooping you right up and putting you right in the box, you know? And I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking, maybe the Lord doesn't want me to go down this slide. And in that moment of spiritual wisdom, I decided to start backing up down the ladder. I'm having to push five-year-olds out of the way, and they're very disappointed in me. I've ruined their whole, be- whole belief system about adults, that, that they go down the slide and I wouldn't. Fear will make you back up when you should go forward. Fear will, will talk you out of the next step that you need to take. Satan wants you to believe that you can't do this. It's too difficult. I just can't. Too many things could go wrong. I can't go forward. And so we freeze or we move back. But it's important to know that God hasn't given us the spirit of fear. So when that voice is whispering in our ear and saying, you can't do this, that's not God. That's not God telling us that. A difficult season is not a death sentence. I think that's what Joseph understood. I think he had the ability to say, I'm going through a difficult season right now, but it's not the end of me. This is not the end of me. Who knows, this could be the beginning of something. That's faith. Faith is saying this difficult season is not the end of me. It could be the beginning of something. And I know that I could be talking to someone who's saying, well, Jonathan, let's just take that to its natural end. What if you're talking to somebody right now in the room who has a terminal illness? You're saying that a difficult season isn't a death sentence, but what if it is a death sentence for them? I would agree with you if the Bible said that we're gonna die. Amen. But the Bible says that if we believe in Jesus Christ, that we're not gonna die. There's actually a way, you know how in, in, in algebra, we might put a line over a number to say that that number repeats, you know, it's a three that goes on and on and on. In the, in the Greek language, you can do that with a word. And so when Jesus said, whoever lives and believes in me will never die, what, it, what he's saying is whoever lives and believes in me will never, 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 on into infinity die. What that means is you're not going to die. It's important because sometimes we mess up the idea of healing because we have a very earthly idea of healing. That a person is only healed if they get better on earth. No, perfect healing is heaven. When I, when I step over into heaven, that is when I will be 100% healed. This old body that I live in, it's, o- it's only barely over 40, but I'm learning it only has, it has a limited lifespan. It wears out. I mean, some of my body has already gone home to be with the Lord up here, right? The, um, This difficult season is not a death sentence. And God can help me be successful even in this difficult season. Look at what Joseph said. This is, Joseph is in Egypt. He is now in charge of everything. He's married, he has two sons. He names his older son Manasseh, and these names mean something. Manasseh means forget. He says, God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. And then his second son he named Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. So easy to think Joseph was just a man of steel, didn't have feelings. He just somehow managed to push through. No, he had feelings. He said Egypt was the land of his grief. Let that settle in for a second. He's saying, this is still the land of my grief. And yet he said, but God has made me fruitful here. Isn't it cool that God can make you fruitful in the land of your divorce? God can make you fruitful in the land of your bankruptcy. God can make you fruitful in the land of your parenting struggle. God can make you fruitful in the land of your work struggle where you're like, I don't understand why I'm still struggling with this every day when I go to work. This is so huge that if I'm staying focused on God and I'm willing to look ahead and keep my eyes forward, God can make me fruitful even in the middle of a situation that I would label the land of my grief. It's a powerful deal. 
What about Potiphar's wife? Because some of us, some of us, we look backward. That's, that's for some of us. Some of us, we look down. But for some of us, our issue is that we tend to look around. And what I mean by that is, wherever it is that God wants you to go, Satan will be standing just off to the side with some glistening, gleaming thing that he tries to get you off track with. The Bible says we get in trouble because we're lured away by our own desires. Fishermen in the room, you know what a lure is. A lure is a very attractive moment attached to a very unattractive future. Right? And Satan will stand just to the side of whatever it is that God wants you to be at, and he will dangle a very attractive moment that is attached to a very unattractive future. Over the several, past several years, one of the things I've grieved about is seeing ministry leaders who, in my opinion, really had hearts for God, and I really did believe, I, I, and I do believe, that they've accomplished great things for God and that, they're, that they, they have a, a heart and a desire to do that. But I've seen Satan dangle something just off track and somebody loses their ministry and not just their ministry, but their effectiveness and not just their effectiveness, but their reputation and what people believed about them and about God because it was an, it was an attractive moment that was attached to a very unattractive future. What does the Bible say about this? Proverbs 4, same chapter you're in right now. Just go back a few verses. It says, don't even think about it. Don't go that way. Turn away and keep moving. I think, Joseph, I think that's what Joseph was doing with Potiphar's wife. Turn away and just keep moving. Don't even think about it. What, what does it mean here? Because this is, this is hard for Bible translators to translate. As a matter of fact, different versions kind of go in different directions with this first phrase. But one of the Bible language scholars I like to read said, the best sort of verbatim kind of translation of this is don't let your thoughts be unattended and run wild. See, our thoughts are like toddlers. If left unattended, they will get into trouble. <laughs> but Joseph did three things. I promised you this earlier in the talk. I said there was something that Joseph did to show us how to deal with looking around. Because Satan will dangle that lure. What do you do when Satan's dangling that lure in front of you? Well, there's three things. First of all, Joseph said no, and he said it loudly. He told her, I will not do this. This is a line I will not cross. So for many of us, our first step is just to flat out say, no, I'm not gonna do that, right? And we need to hear it come out of our mouth. I am not going to do that. I'm not going to cross that line. The second thing he did, the Bible says that he kept out of her way whenever possible. It means he avoided her anytime he could avoid her. What does that mean? That means that we need to understand, I can't get cozy with temptation. A person who gets cozy with temptation is gonna end up in trouble. And he said, I don't need to get cozy with her. I need to keep my distance from her. That's the second thing. So after I say no, I need to keep my distance. I need to do whatever it takes to put distance between me and the thing that Satan wants to trap me in. And then the third thing is, if you have to, run for your life. Because that's what he did when Potiphar's wife grabbed onto his coat is he ran for his life. So that's, when it comes to looking around, if Satan's tempting me with something, that's what I gotta do. I gotta say no, and I gotta stay away. And then if I have to, I'm gonna have to run for my life. See, the thing about it is, I gotta know that what God is offering me is better than what Satan is offering me. I gotta know that. I gotta adopt that. I gotta digest that. That's gotta be part of my life to say, this is, this is a basic fundamental truth in my life because ultimately, whether or not I end up losing my testimony and my influence has to do with whether or not I'm focused on God. I would say that losing your balance in the Christian life is not usually a failure of intention. It's usually a failure of attention. I don't, want, I don't want to mess up. I don't think you do. I don't think we get in trouble because we intend to do the wrong thing. I think we get in trouble because we quit attending to the right thing. And we get distracted because it looks like what Satan has to offer us is cooler. And the hall of 
faith. In Hebrews 12, when Paul says, hey, we've been surrounded by such this, this huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up or causes us to lose our balance. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. How do we do this? We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. How do we do this? We do this eyes forward. We fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, now juxtapose that against Psalm 55, 22, where the Bible says, give your burdens to the Lord and he will take care of you. He will not permit the godly to slip and fall. What does it mean, the godly here? Well, it doesn't mean the perfect because there's no such thing. There's not a perfect person on the planet. A godly person is a person who keeps their eyes on Jesus and says, I'm gonna keep calibrating myself to God because I'm gonna tend to drift, but every time I find myself drifting, I'm gonna keep trying to coax myself back in the right direction to keep my eyes on Jesus. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna keep doing, that is a godly person. And what the Bible says is that God will not permit a godly person to slip. Now, I did a lot of thinking about that this week. I thought, what does it mean that God won't permit us to fall? And I thought about that water park I mentioned earlier. It was pretty close to our house, so we went there a few times. And I remember one time I was there, and there was a dad teaching his daughter to swim in one of the bigger pools. At first, he was carrying her whole weight so she could learn how to kick and paddle and all of that. And then he would have her just swim just a few feet from the side of the pool to him, from the side of the pool to him. Did that for a little bit. And then they started doing something interesting. Then she would start to swim to him and he would have his arms out and she would be swimming and just as she would almost reach his arms, he would step back and she would swim some more and he would step back and she would swim some more and then after, it wasn't very long before you knew it, she had swum from one side of the pool to the other side of the pool. But you know what he was saying the whole time? Don't worry, I've got you. I won't let you fall. I won't let you go into the water. It's gonna be okay. That's the whole time he's saying that to her. It's okay, it's okay. I won't let you drown. I'm not gonna let you get underneath. That's what God is saying. See, the thing is, if that father continued to support her weight the whole time, she'd never learn how to swim. But if, on the other hand, he walked away from her and let her fall beneath the water, he wouldn't be a very good father, would he? See, the thing is, your God wants you to know how to swim, but he's not gonna let you drown. He's gonna say, just keep, just keep looking at me. That's why this focus thing we're talking about is so important. He's like, just keep looking at me and keep coming toward me, and I won't let you drown. I won't let you fall. That may be the biggest thing you can do to impact the balance in your life is just to say, I'm gonna be real careful to fix my eyes on Jesus because he's got me. And as long as I keep following him, he's not gonna let me fall. Even if I'm dealing with unfairness, even if I'm dealing with difficulty and stuff that just feels like I shouldn't be having to go through this, he can sustain me in the middle of that. Let me pray for you real quick. Father, thank you so much for everyone who is here. And as we continue to think about balance in our lives, I pray that you would continue to give us wisdom to pursue you, to think about you, to, to listen to your word, to hear from you on how we can find what you're doing in our lives despite the challenges and the difficult circumstances. Help us to see your future and our purpose and not to get caught up in the past. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for being here with us. We'll see you next week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.